Before we begin today's episode, we wanted to thank our latest Patreon supporter, Eric Tashalis. Thank you so much for your support. Without it, this show would not be possible. You did good on that one. Of course I did. Did you spit your gum out this time? I don't have gum. I have full lips, and sometimes it makes it seem like I have gum. <laughs> you have gum that's in your mouth 24 hours a day. Good try. Racism. Good. I'm You're trying good. to call me racist, and I'm watching and you now put it. gum into your mouth while you're saying it. Wow. And you're lying on me. Wow. I'm a treat. It's a long history of folks lying on brothers. Oh, my God. You want to be a part of that legacy? <laughs> Killing me. Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I'm Shandine Garcia. And I'm Delma Jackson III. And today, we're excited to be joined by both Leah and Rena Dunbar. Uh, racial justice leaders in the Pacific Northwest and Twinsies. I'm excited to be here today. It's the end of a really long week and um, we are gearing up to plan for our next season. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited thinking about new listeners. I'm excited thinking about new potential guests and I'm really appreciative of the folks who have reached out and asked us questions about past episodes, who have requested past guests to join us. So Shandine and I are looking to release our final episode, which will be episode 12, uh, July 30. And then we're going to take a hiatus for a while. And we're looking to come back in November with season two. Um, for our final episode, we'll probably uh, do some Q&A with some of our Patreon supporters. So uh, for our folks who are donating to Patreon, uh, we'll be sending you a message asking you a few uh, questions, looking for some feedback from you, soliciting questions from you that maybe you want Shandine and I to spend some time talking about and answering um, so we're looking forward to doing that for our July 30 episode. So look to hear from us in the near future. Let's jump into this. How are you doing? What's your high and low? I guess I'll start with my low like I normally do. What's on my mind is, right now and this week is how what's been happening around the country Regarding police brutality, um, and I'm thinking specifically about the brother out of Louisiana. I'm thinking about him, and I'm thinking about how that continues to overlap with what we're seeing right now in um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I was uh, tuning in to my man, John Oliver, right, who was kind of breaking down that conflict and that history. And then I came across this video of this 10-year-old Israeli girl was responding to John Oliver's segment about Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I found myself really, like, upset at her response. And I don't know that I've ever been that politically enraged by a 10-year-old. <laughs> I had to, like, <laughs> I had to really catch myself, you know, 
Um, and I like as I'm watching her video, I'm like poking holes and everything she's saying. <laughs> she's <laughs> so, 10. You're bullying a 10 year old. Basically. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, I mean, it went so far as to like. Let me see if I can find her email address. I'm about to tell her. <laughs> to <my mind. laughs> oh, God. I was holding her to some sort of expectation as though she were like this well-established scholar in Israeli uh, rights and politics, you know. Um, so that felt like a low for sure. <laughs> she was about to catch it from me. In terms of a high, um, I have, I know I've talked before about struggling with executive functioning issues, but I feel like this week um, I've been really productive and that has felt good, um, both on the domestic front, the work front, just checking off a lot of boxes and um, there's still plenty in front of me to do, but I'm reflecting back on the week. Um, I feel really good about what I've been able to accomplish and the fact that I've been able to do it without losing my shit for the most part. So that's me. How are you doing, Shandi? I I share the same piece of the low. Mm. It's the, the thinking about bodies and, and not wanting to be desensitized to it is one. And it's, it's, it's devastatingly sad. Also, I think about curriculum theory all the time because I'm a loser nerd. Um, and <laughs> I fought so hard to get indigenous curricular content in front of uh, K-12 students. Mm-hmm. And it kills me, the lack of content on all the, the depth of what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. We don't have the tools. And I say we as in most folks in public at K-12 public education and don't have the tools to talk about the, I don't even want to call it conflict. It's more than a conflict, but talk about lives right now in the way mm-hmm. that we need to be talking about it. And I feel irresponsible. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's more that, um, we can and should be doing in 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 terms of helping equip people to talk about what's happening in the world that mm-hmm. isn't in some binary fashion of an us and them and a simplified response to to death and horror and trauma and so that it's that's been bringing me down mm-hmm. at the same time um, I get to see some other things in my in my world come full circle that I've had a lot of shame around. And mm. my father's first language was Spanish, and he made a conscious decision not to teach my sister and I Spanish or my brother Spanish, the three of us, to not to not teach us because um, he was definitely abused in school for speaking Spanish and was not allowed to speak it in school. And even though he and all his brothers and sisters speak it and everybody in in our family, that generation does not everybody in my generation 
speak Spanish. And it's been a deep sense and source, not sense, it's been a deep source of shame for me in a lot of locations. Um, and it's that it's the lateral oppression when other, you know, Latinos, Latinas or Chicanos, Chicanas, like, give me a hard time for not speaking it or judge me accordingly. Mm -hmm. And my, the full circle part is I, we really, really encouraged and created conditions for uh, my sons to be bilingual. And this morning, my youngest son got up at 7am and drove himself to take his AP Spanish class. Mm -hmm. And in asking him about it, like they say AP Spanish class, I'm an AP Spanish test to take his test and asking him about it. I said, is that are you worried? Is it like, I, he's like, mom, it's going to be so easy. It's so easy. Mm -hmm. My boys are both fully bilingual. Now mm -hmm. my son, my older son is majoring in Spanish in college. And my youngest son wants to then begin to learn Portuguese when he goes to college. And I'm so proud of them. And, and for me, it's an invitation to okay, now I need to learn it. Now I need to really know it. I mean, I know conversational, but I really don't know Spanish. And so I want to look at them and have them look back at me and, and be proud that um, their you know, old lady mama is going to start getting online and taking some Spanish classes. Yeah, that's what's up. I have a follow-up question if I can. Yeah. I've heard that story from I don't know how many people where their parents chose not to teach um, their own first language because of either facing a level of <clears throat> oppression and persecution for having spoken it and or um, assessing that you don't need the mother tongue because we're here in the States. Everybody speaks English. There's no point in me trying to get you to learn whatever the mother tongue might be, right? Because English is the language you'll need for quote unquote success. And so I guess I'm a little surprised that I fit. I assumed that that was such a widespread experience that if you did not speak, it would just be understood that that's probably what happened and that you weren't necessarily like making that decision for yourself that you didn't want to learn. So is that something, am I missing something there? Do you get it from some circles and not others? Like, I'm curious how that, how that plays out, like where you feel the most judged, if you will, for not speaking. Yeah, I think, I think it's a, a dual judgment. I think it's internalized oppression myself. And so, and I can't ever pull that layer of judgment out of what I may be projecting other people judging me for. So know that. So if, if I'm, if a group of people are judging me, which I can fairly confidently say when they're judging me, just be like, what, you don't speak Spanish. That's weird. Like straight up that sort of judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, Layered on top of that is my own personal internalized shame. So I don't know how to um, calibrate mm -hmm. the external judgment against my internal one. Mm -hmm. And I would say um, I see it almost everywhere, almost mm -hmm. everywhere. There's no isolated 
dream world that you sort of put forward, which is people just don't know that and just don't understand that. Mm-hmm. I, there are very few people who actually know and understand that there's a reason there's a generation of us mm-hmm. who aren't bilingual for a particular reason. Uh, a beautiful scholar named Megan Bang in, in Chicago is indigenous. And she said, I heard her say once, I think I was on a call with her. I think she might've even been saying it to me said, I wonder if there's a reason if the ancestors had some purposeful intention around us, maybe not having our language accessible right now so that we could Mm -hmm. fight the good fight with people who speak English, because maybe we needed to be armed with English and mm-hmm. maybe there are some lessons we need to learn mm-hmm. so that when we do reclaim and revitalize our indigenous languages, we have all this, all these lessons with it that would have been different if we had been just raised with it. And not to justify, you know, genocide or theft of language, but, to, but maybe there is a more complex response to language revitalization. Mm-hmm. And I like the generative nature of what she offers in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can dig it. We are super excited to have our guests with us today. I'm going to turn it over to Delma to introduce our first guest. Thank you, Shandine, for doing that like a normal human being. I would love to introduce Dr. Leah Dunbar. Her interests lie in ethnic studies, education, organizational societal change, youth empowerment, generational healing, and dance. She is committed to educational justice and facilitates learning through what she terms restoring, engaging students in activities for community building, critical reflection, and discussion with an emphasis on listening to understand and hope, and a rigorous examination of place and perspective. Leah understands this interdisciplinary work as the current iteration of the civil rights movement and as the beneficiary of the tireless efforts of many brave, brilliant, and beloved ancestors, mentors, and colleagues, whose example she follows by bearing courageous witness to injustice in order to open doors for healing and change, and by demonstrating deep respect for the wisdom that young people possess. Joined by her sister, Dr. Rena Dunbar, who grew up black slash biracial on the traditional homelands of the Miami Nation in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She earned her BA in literature from DePaul University, her master's in teaching from Pacific University after moving to Oregon in 1995, and just completed her doctorate in educational leadership from the University of Oregon in 2020. A longtime ethnic studies teacher dedicated to challenging the marginalization of young people, Rena and Leah also co-created Courageous Conversations, a local and well-respected rendition of a secondary-level critical ethnic studies course. Rena's research focused upon the impact of ethnic studies curricula upon students' sense of cross-racial empathy. She was honored to return to the Sapsiquatla teacher education program after working as a graduate, uh, a GE, I forget what the E stands for, a graduate educational assistant, I don't know what it stands for, as a GE last year, to serve as coordinator for the Sapsiquatla Grow Your Own Teachers Project. She works to deepen her ability to serve young people in ways that honor the connections between culturally accurate and aligned curricula, black liberation, 
indigenous sovereignty, healthy communities, and justice. For me, um, your bio is that I would say is really one sentence, and it's that you're both warrior poets who are aunties to the world. Mm. I wanted to say, like, aunties to my son and teachers of my sons, and but really, that's that's just our tiny world. You're you're aunties to the world, and it's a big deal, and we're honored to have you here today. Thank you. Yeah, definitely honored. Thank you. I guess I'll open up with one of the questions I ask just about every guest we've had, I believe, um, has to do with how you perceive the path that brought you to the work you do. I just think about our parents who, um, black biracial couple, both teachers at one time and, um, just their journey to be together and losing their teaching jobs because of who they were and who they loved and then moving forward and moving to Los Angeles, having us twice, twice, um, and then us growing up, you know, in, in these, in these spaces where, we knew that um, that racism had had shaped a lot of their their experiences, but that love had also shaped a lot of their experiences. And so there's like that critical like educator piece that I think we just lived with in the home of um, interrogating. Uh, just the state of the world and and the classroom and you know and wanting something different and so that very much shaped our journey to becoming educators. I'll just echo what Leah said. Uh, our upbringing really brought us into I think always kind of um, having to explain um, some things, um, being born biracial. When we went, to, we moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana when we were five. And when we were in kindergarten, Leah and I were placed in different kindergarten classes. And we were mirror twins and had never been separated. And so that first separation was, you know, just profoundly painful. Leah was talking about the wounds. Like, mm-hmm. literally, I felt like a part of my body had been separated. And yet I had no words to express like what my experience was. And I was trying to learn the alphabet without having half of my body with me. And, um, you know, I just remember that being this really disconcerting time or just discombobulated time where I I couldn't, I couldn't even hear. It was so, it was so painful Mm -hmm. that I had earaches every single day. And I, I, I thought I heard fire engines in my ear every day. And so I couldn't learn. And so here's, twin over here, um, you know, one class, me over here and, um, not being able to learn actually. And the teacher that I had was like, well, obviously she's having issues. And so (laughs) let's, um, let's hold her back. Like these girls can't learn. And my mom was just like, no, you can't do that. You can't separate the twins. You can't have one in one grade and one in the other. But, um, 
you know, that moment, that kindergarten moment really shaped, I think, at least for me, like, what do we pay attention to in our students? What is getting in the way of them feeling safe? Or, you know, how can they learn in a way that's their style of learning, as opposed to a systems um, imposed way of assuming what's best for us? Thank you for giving Diving Justice a listen. We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have. If you're digging the pod, there are a couple of things you could do to show your support. First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together. The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice. Thinking about your beautiful mother and um, the calling and the influence she's had on, on so many and thinking about Rena saying since kindergarten, is that all the way through with your father as well? This concept of teaching and creating the conditions to hear and be and see people in their in their fullest humanity, so that they're well and whole. That's. Mm. I would frame that with our dad in in such a different way. Um, I think that the being raised by a black man, you know, from birth and being, um, you know, just that inoculation that a black parent tries to provide their, their child, um, before they move into, um, systems that would harm them. Um, sometimes feels, uh, like harm itself, you know, a little bit like, um, I would say that, I mean, it wasn't focused on healing. It was, you know, his stories were always focused on, um, protection, protection, preventing harm, not necessarily, um, transforming necessarily. Um, and yet, you know, I mean, there, there was so like, you know, we were the youngest of six and, um, and my mother's only children, but we're, we were the last of, of my dad's, well, twee and me being 13 minutes younger. (laughs) So I'm the baby, obviously. And, um, but just like, the, the, the arming that he tried to provide us was very much framed in that, like education will be your armor, right? You will succeed. You will attend college. You will achieve, you know, and a piece of that, you know, is, is harmful. I think, you know, in some ways, right? Like, you know, we're, we're sent, into, into the classroom and into schools that don't necessarily honor, you know, our ways of knowing or being, and yet we have to like be the best, right? Like 
we were those kids. And I would say, you know, my mom was a special education um, teacher. So her perspective was more critical um, and with that, you know, just her familiarity and, and the, and the ways that she had to fight, you know, for inclusion for her students and for us in, in some instances, whereas, you know, my dad's, um, I mean, I think that his, his way of, of, of protecting us was like, you know, you're just going to be the best. I think about this connection I often make between, the possibility of some some level of autonomy. Um, what would it mean to take uh, something like, let's say, reparations and to create a space where we are building something all new from the ground up and money is not an issue, right? And we have all the resources in the world and on and on and on. Um, If I were to put the two of you in charge, right, of education in this new imagined space where you have all the resources you'll ever need, but you have to come up with what education looks like, um, and that could be K through 12, K through beyond, maybe we don't have a K through whatever system, and it's something completely outside of that, right? Um any ideas about what you might do if you had those kind of unlimited resources based on the experiences you've had personally and professionally, what could education look like that you think might be more optimal? Okay. Well, um, I'll, I'll start and then hopefully Leo will correct me, <laughs> but, um, kids have to be in charge of their own learning if we're with the youth, then they're, to me, they're the ones um, calling the shots for themselves. What are they interested in? What are they, uh, what draws them? Uh, what do they see around um, so that they can be their own brilliant selves, which they are. Um, and yet like create a space where they could go in this direction if they wanted to, or that direction if they wanted to. Um I stopped um, giving grades um, a long time ago. And so, I mean, that would definitely be off to the side because that felt inherently harmful to me um, for me to be grading um, a young person, judging a young person on, on whatever. So, so that's, um, that's gone. Um, I don't believe, I mean, from what I can see, I don't believe that kids see, separation between subject matter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I get rid of, you know, disciplines in terms of math over here and science over there and language arts and poetry. I, I like the idea of, um, you know, learning and community um, and not just, um, you know, people who are designated or licensed as teachers. Right. You know, I, I mean, I, I love the idea of, of students learning with, with, you know, with community members, you know, like the pandemic, you know, our kids were out of school for a while, completely out of school for a minute. And my son had the opportunity to go and, you know, work on a farm. 
um, you know, and, and just be, be outside of the classroom, right? Like, so I guess I would transform what the, what, what the classroom looks like and it would not be, um, indoors if at all possible, unless it was raining or snowing. <laughs> so, um, I, I, it's really problematic, I think for, for kids and unhealthy, um, for them to be sitting in desks in a classroom all day, every day. And so that, that needs to change, you know, we're both, you know, ethnic studies practitioners. And so, you know, our youth should, should ideally be working, um, to, to name and understand the problems that are most pressing in the world in their, in their eyes. So, you know, they're the ones that get to make meaning of, of their world and then, and then figure out their place within it. And so I, that's what I would, that's what I think learning is and should look like it would, and it does look like in certain, certain spaces, um, you know, but not enough spaces. Which leads me to my, to my next question. So you all both embody the learner stance, whether it be like reading new books or learning how to snowboard, you know, in your forties or what, like, and also embody the bringing in, um, uh, community to be teachers as you do that in your spaces all of the time. Um, and I hear and listen and am energized about that. Get rid of grades and get rid of discipline and get rid of, because that's, I mean, that's the dream world, the dream space. And right now where you all are currently positioned, one of you operationalizing beautiful professional development for teachers in the current system, another helping grow teachers who are going to go into that system. How do you reckon with that just drastic, almost disconnect of fight the system while in the system and promoting and serving the system? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) How? I think that, um, you know, bringing, bringing, um, questions into the spaces that we're in and, and, and allowing, allowing for those questions to, to disrupt in, in ways that are gentle and gradual, right. I think is, is probably the, the strategy of, of decolonization. And, and I use that word, you know, with awareness that I'm borrowing it from the indigenous scholars that have informed us and, and our thinking around education. Um, so there's a lot of undoing, right. That has to, has to happen and a lot of assumptions that have to be questioned, right? Like grades, um, or you know how we how we read and decode behavior. And how we understand trauma and um, historical harm 
and how that shows up in us as, as individuals and then in communities. is a big piece of moving, you know, this vision, right, this, or visions, right, forward in systems is, and we're, you know, blessed to be, you know, in, in community with educators, you know, who are, who are doing this work, right, asking these questions, looking at assessment, looking at, um, at, you know, at restorative practices um, as as an organizing principle, right, rather than as an intervention. Mm-hmm. Wow, I, was, I, I I'm still trying to figure out how um, you know what my influences influences outside of the classroom. I'm still negotiating that, but I feel like um, you know. Leah and I were always trying to create like the beloved community Mm -hmm. in our classroom. Every single person in that classroom belongs. Every single story belongs in that space. And, you know, and how do we make room for that? And um, I'm assuming that we're doing that outside of the classroom too. It's it's just, it's, it's, it's different, right? There's different uh, mechanisms at work. But it's still how is every space that we move into, how do we um, hold center that everyone belongs there and everyone can be seen there and everyone has value? And I'm not saying that the value of supremacy lets me be clear, (laughs) right? Um, But um, that the perspectives um, belong. At my best, I also try to remember that when I'm working with folks. Um, And I tell white people all the time, you got to stick with those relatives and those friends who don't get it. Those are the main people you need to stay in relationship with. And Right. But when it comes to my maintaining my own relationships with folks, when we don't have a similar worldview, I don't always follow my own advice. And I can be really quick to like cut ties at least momentarily yeah right um but yeah i feel like we have some really dope guests on the show and they're always doing really dope work and i also feel like one of the things i know i'm committed to is like normalizing the fact that we're not always dope yeah yeah sometimes we're shitty and so yeah what what does your shitty look like a lot of my petty sometimes I was just kind of picking at Leah in my own mind. Like, well, she's like that. And I'm not like that. So Leah, you know, she can deal with the, the people, the adults. <laughs> I'm going to just be over here writing my poetry, um, which is usually just one sentence that I'm like, wow, that was one sentence. That's really good. Um, <laughs> <that's it. laughs> and then, um, and then my other petty is my partner is white. Um, the person who um, has the privilege of sleeping in my bed every night is a white man. And, and that's hard. Hmm. And um, for him. Shandine <laughs> <laughs> has definitely been at the table with us when he's walked in and he's just been like, oh. <laughs> 
but he wants to be there. So he gets, he gets it, you know, he signed on. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so I'm doing a, like, and I mean, I, I can't not believe that that's not karmic to, to feel like I've chosen to work through some major stuff with a what you know, someone that has just kind of the, op- the opposite, if we're thinking in the binaries of who I am as a woman, you know, and, and as a black identified woman, and so I can get real petty with him. Yeah. I would say that I'm vicariously petty through <laughs> Rena. <laughs> and her partner. Because <laughs> I'll just jump right out. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I agree. Um, so, and, yeah. I mean, it's... it. I. Yeah, I, I love that that you were prepared for that that question. <laughs> <laughs> I have been known yes. to put people on blast a little bit on Facebook, um, and not individuals, but you know, like buildings and systems, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just and knowing, like you know, like that if you if you move it into that public space, like there is there is. There can be shame, but sometimes shame moves people into action, mm-hmm. you know? Right. It's like that that line, like, that's mm-hmm. really hard to discern around what Stockholm Syndrome is between wanting to hold somebody account- accountable who's, who's, like, holding you hostage in this, like, racially violent space and you don't want to buy into it. So do you feel bad for like lashing back? Right. Like, how are you supposed to do it? Yet you believe in being right relationship. Yeah. You're trying to be inclusive and loving and kind. And really all you really want to do is just punch the fuck out of somebody. Yeah. 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 I mean, just to, to kind of go back full circle to our mom, you know, like our mom, Jean Dunbar. I mean, she was just like that guilt that you feel that's your conscience <laughs> and you should feel guilty and, and then do something about it. Uh, not just get stuck there, you know, but this was a white lady that, um, I mean, oh, oh, she knew what was up and, um, you know, absolutely. Um, like even to the point where she refused to be buried, um, <laughs> on the, on this land. Cause she was like, I don't belong here. This is not where you are burying me, even though all, you know, f- four generations are in the same cemetery of her line. And she's like, no, uh, uh-uh. Um, you know, her guilt or her consciousness or whatever moved her to change. And, you know, that's what I would hope Mm -hmm. for all of us is that, you know, we can, we can, we can handle that guilt for a minute or a while. And then we do something, Mm -hmm. we do the right thing. So Mm -hmm. we can be petty too. My mom, she she would let me be petty too. (laughs) I like the invitation that there um, isn't a timeline to the pettiness. I hadn't thought about it quite that way until you said it so perfectly, Rena. That sometimes it lasts, sometimes it helps us change, sometimes, but it's ever present and it's upon us to have it, have like watch it run its course. Yeah. yeah. Mm, I appreciate you all uh, so much, and <clears throat> I would love to imagine a time where we can have you back and kind of drill down into some more stuff. Um, well, one of the things that came up for me as we were talking was this current um, 
bullshit debate around critical race theory that I'm seeing pop up mm-hmm. in so many areas right now. Um, and I would love for the four of us to unpack that a little bit at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would yeah. be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Count us in. Count us in. Count us in. <laughs> Appreciate that language. You know, I'll say this at one thing and then I know we need, we need to wrap up, but uh, I was working with this woman out at the Burns Paiute tribe and um, it was hard to find my way there because it's so deep inside Oregon. And, and I said something um, wrong and I appreciate her correcting me. And I was like, you should like, maybe you could post somewhere better, like on the website, how to get to like your lands. Cause it's hard to get. And she's all, no, I don't want people to find us. <laughs> like, we like that. We can't yeah. be found. And so, with the debate and I loved that lesson for me. It still sticks with me yeah. so 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 deep. We talk about critical race theory. I just want to be like tribal crit theory, tribal crit theory, Brian Brayboy's work. And then just as I'm about to like shout that out to the uh-huh. field, I'm all, oh I don't want right? to like <laughs> I just want to like hold it sacred for indigenous yeah. scholars and I hold it sacred for folks who understand like you know, black indigenous solidarity. Like there's this piece that I almost don't want people to know. And um, so I'm kind yeah. of excited to dig into that with critical race theory, but that's all that's Absolutely. in my head. Absolutely. You don't want people to take our words and use them against us. Cause we know that that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I married a feminist one time. <laughs> Isn't that the fallacy? I love the Betty. It just came out. It was just perfect. Damn. Well Beautifully modeled. <laughs> Dive in Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com. Diving Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fairnstein is our audio engineer. Sarah McCandless is our administrative support. Jennifer Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien help us out with marketing and promotional support. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.